0: Welcome to this special series of Moneyball Medicine focused on AI, machine learning, and analytics applied to drug discovery and development. This special series was recorded as part of the AI Applications Summit produced by Corey Lane Partners. I'm your host, Harry Glorikian. In this series, I will interview different speakers from the event and we will hear their experiences. We will dive into the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for the years to come. Welcome to Moneyball Medicine. My next speaker has been described in many ways. A health futurist, a social entrepreneur, executive, professor, patient advocate, and self-proclaimed data hippie. Christopher Boone, Ph.D., has a career-long history as a dynamic, innovative thought leader and a public voice on the power of health informatics and big data analytics and its ability to radically transform the global healthcare system into a learning health system. Boone currently serves as the vice president and lead for global medical epidemiology and big data analysis at Pfizer. An adjunct assistant professor of health administration at the New York University's Robert F. Weiger Graduate School of Public Service an active board member of several influential organizations and a co-founder of a few startup companies. More recently, he served at the vice president and global head of real-world data and analytics at Pfizer. Dr. Boone has been recognized as a 2019 top 100 innovator in data and analytics, a 2018 emerging pharma leader by pharmaceutical executive, and a 2017 top 40 under 40 leader in minority health by the national minority quality forum dr boone holds or has held appointments to some of the most influential national committees focused on health data patient centricity including the board of director for the stewards of change institute the executive board of director for the patients advocate foundation the Executive Board of Directors for the National Patient Advocate Foundation, the Board of Directors for SHARE for Cures, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Data Access Across Sectors for Healthcare Initiative, the Interoperability Committee for the National Quality Forum, the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics, Working Group on HHS Data Access and Use, the Health IT Policy Committee, Federal Advisory Committee, and the Advisory Group for the American Society of Clinical Oncologists CancerLink Initiative. Dr. Boone has earned his BS from the University of Tulsa, an MS from the University of Texas at Arlington, a PhD from the University of Texas at Dallas, and two executive certificates from the Harvard Kennedy School. He is a fellow of the American College of Health Executives and a fellow of the Healthcare Information Management and Systems Society. Chris that was a hell of a mouthful. My god. Ha, 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 I don't know. How do you keep on? I'm I'm surprised I like said all that stuff straight and didn't stumble upon myself. Um, that you know, I I'm really happy to have you on the show. I mean, I I I really do want to delve into sort of your experiences, I guess, along the way, and now you're at Pfizer. Can you give us some examples of how you're utilizing data to accomplish the goals you've set out for, you know, even yourself or your organization?
1: Oh, wow. That's a that's a very, 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 very good question. Man. But I, I will start the part with, uh, start the response with addressing your part of how I ended up at Pfizer, because I think it's a it just adds to the story and I think gives people a better sense of my perspective on the world, um, you know, and, and as you highlighted in, in the uh, In my bio sketch, you know, if people look at my career trajectory. I mean, I started off very much in the health system in the hospital and um, and the reason that I did like my master's in healthcare administration or even uh, Or and even became a fellow of the American College of Healthcare executives is because I for all I knew, I was going to be a CEO of a health system, and I was pretty adamant about that. But I think there was a certain point in my career when I really embraced my true self. Um, I had spent, you know, I started in informatics uh, before we called it technically informatics. It was just IT. Uh, and we were doing many of the, the bills and implementations of many of the clinical systems. And so I was in the world of data before we really focused on the data. We were more focused on the systems and the technology pieces of it. And, um, and there was a point when um, when I really uh, started to really focus in on the data and, and the actual secondary uses of it. And I think it was really around the time we were still using the term business intelligence, if you remember that. And then we kind of, we, we shifted the term to be clinical intelligence because we were focused on uh, clinical information systems. And so, um, and that really was honestly my, um, my foray into, uh, into this world of, real world data and analytics or real world evidence or big data analytics or what term whatever term you want to use um to really uh describe the work that we're doing right now and so i come into uh, the world of pharma not as a conventional or traditional uh, pharma guy um, but as someone who cut his teeth in the provider world who spent uh, a significant part of his career in nonprofits, who spent um a good part of his career in consulting, you know, helping organizations do, um, you know, exactly a lot of the work that we're doing now. Uh, I was fortunate that I literally spent the, my entire career in the world of informatics and big data. And it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was necessarily strategically planned, you know, some of it was, um, by all intents and purposes, was serendipitous. And, and I ended up, and it's just something that came natural to me. Uh, there was always an intellectual curiosity on how we can do things. Better and how we could ultimately uh, disrupt the way that we currently uh, treat patients, and ultimately transform the system for the for the betterment of patients. And um, you know, I, I actually came into pharma uh, with the crazy notion that I could actually disrupt uh, and influence it at least a little bit as far as the um, incorporation of big data analytics and how we do much of our clinical research. Our clinical development and ultimately the commercialization of, um, of, of, of therapies for patients, and so that's that's always been my aspiration. You know, it's 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 all centered around transformation and disruption in healthcare, but from many different perspectives.
0: Well, first thing is, any uh, headhunter out there listening to this, remember he's looking to be the head of a healthcare system at some point, so keep that in mind. Um,
1: well. I- yeah i mean it's say like, you know that's always been a, i mean a goal but you know i mean right now I'm, I'm i'm really um really happy with the work that we do i think you know i would say at this point um i um haven't really really embraced this idea of what the possibilities could be the art of the possible when it comes to big data and analytics and i don't mean that in a um uh you know in a fortuitous or some kind of uh uh you know a, a theoretical manner i really mean it in the sense of What I guess I like to use the term innovate pragmatically or innovate practically. And, you know, I hear a lot of folks that are talking about these possibilities. They get enamored with these um, very grandiose ideas and concepts that are, that can never really effectively be implemented in an organization. And I pride myself on developing very, um, uh, you know, uh, very, very, uh, uh, very, uh, I would like to say aspirational visions Um, but also very detailed and elaborate strategic plans to achieve it. And I can also lead the part of operationalizing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if my career at some point, if I end up back in the the health system in the hospital, it's great. If I don't, um, that's fine, too. Um, I just love (laughs) leading leading, uh, transformation and disruption and and doing it all for the patient. So that's good for me.
0: Well, there's a lot of transformation and disruption, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, how do you feel like you're succeeding along this this journey that you're on this goal of of making these changes i mean you know you've got real world evidence experience on the regulatory and clinical decision making side how how are you guys implementing or approaching analytical methods you know from the data side from are you using, you know, new techniques from either artificial intelligence or machine learning and what you're doing? And and how does that generate business value and then impact to the process and the patient?
1: Oh, man, that, that is a, a great question. And I think it's a great question that uh, many organizations have struggled with. You know, many of the big pharmas or even smaller pharmas, have uh, invested heavily in these big data analytic capabilities or these real world data, real world evidence capabilities. I mean, you know, you're you're essentially hiring data scientists um, who don't come cheap. Um, you're investing, uh, you know, significant amounts of money and in, in the the techno- technologies to support it. Um, you know, so it's no cheap an uh, adventure, an investment. And I think the question of ROI is always one that comes up. Um, you know, as far as far as how do you essentially uh, create business impact and generate economic or business value for the organization and how do you measure that I don't I think that uh, many have been struggling with that but I think for um, from our vantage point for me I actually when I came to Pfizer initially I was um, my charge was to really establish a rural data analytics center of excellence for the organization and really I think you know when I came into the organization I, I had my own view on what what that really meant, <laughs> um, but then after assessing and evaluating the organization and figuring out where they were on the, on the, the maturation continuum, it, it, it dawned on me that really where we were was the, our, our real remit at that time was being a catalyst for change. Sure, we had many of the uh, very traditional uh, responsibilities of what you would see in a kind of an office of a chief data officer, right? I mean, where we had you know data strategy, data management, data governance, uh, types of responsibilities. Um, but then we had this added layer where we um, were really the experts in this whole notion of real world data, quote unquote, for the enterprise. And, you know, our kind of uh, misfortune in some regards was that we were ahead of the regulatory impetus for the use of real world data and real world evidence slightly. Um, at the time, you know, you had, um, you know, uh, Scott Gottlieb had. Uh, had was just yeah, he had just taken over uh, taken off the FDA commissioner he was um, he was it was a part of a lot of his uh, his rhetoric, his public speeches around the significance of railroad evidence so he pushed it and that became um, it started with uh, Rob Caleb who was, he was the preceding FDA commissioner and so you saw a lot of these things and then of course we had 21st century cures um, which was another uh, obviously uh, regulatory uh, regulation that pushed it here in the u.s. Uh, there's obviously been things that are happening in the AMA. So, you know, I think that when it came to the use of big data analytics and the use of real-world evidence as it currently stands, there were multiple uh, drivers for what we're seeing, right? I mean, we had, um, you know, when you think about it, just from what we just spoke about, we talked about regla- regulatory incentives, and we talked about technology, and you mentioned AI, machine learning, and these other things. But there's also been these market drivers that have, uh, served as somewhat incentives to, 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 to invoke the change. And I think a lot of that was the, the rising costs for clinical development, You know what we're seeing in clinical trials. Um, obviously there's a significant amount of voluminous amounts of health data that are being um, generated right now. There is uh, um, this push and this emphasis on uh, creating much more of a value-based system And then, of course, you just got this natural pace of scientific innovation, which we see is occurring quite a bit with the biotechs. So the real question is that now that you're investing in all of these big data analytic capabilities and you're investing in the people and with this expertise in AI machine learning and so on and so forth, then how do you really translate that into business value, to your point, right? Well, Um, for me, what I'm leading right now is a group that's focused on um, the the name of the group is Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data Analysis. It sits in the Office of the Chief Medical Officer here at Pfizer, the Global Chief Medical Officer at Pfizer. And really, what we're really aiming to do is accelerate, um, you know, essentially establish a faster data path to show like effectiveness of Pfizer therapies for the regulators. So we're almost trying to create alternative uh, ways to generate evidence that are acceptable to regulators that demonstrate the clinical e- and medical effectiveness of our therapies, right? So, and
0: um, So if I could just jump in there, so so how what are the data sources that you guys are using? In other words, I, I, automatically, different sensors, different devices, different applications, uh, you know, monitoring systems, these are the things that sort of like flash into my head. Um, how are you guys accomplishing the goal that you've set out?
1: Well, I, I will say this. I think that what we're doing now is, is uh, we'll say for, for pharma, is pretty cutting edge. I think what we've used, um, and you know, recently is obviously clinical data from EHR data or lab test results, and you know, and you know, your diagnoses, procedures, you know, that type of data. Um, you know, a lot of things that that sit basically in your EHR. Um, we also use claims data quite a bit, um, but I think really the direction that things are headed now is that you want to see more incorporation of your molecular profiling data. Um, you want to see more data from mobile health or um, the, the wearable devices, as you just mentioned. You also want to see um, the incorporation of data from environmental factors, you know, that affect, um, you know, uh, you know, everybody is making this push towards the, the notion that your environment is a better indicator of your health than your um, genetic profile. And so, we, we obviously want to be, find better ways to analyze that data and what stories and what um, insights you can draw from that. Um, we uh, we've leaned heavily in the past on patient-reported data, obviously as part of randomized clinical trials. You're doing a lot of that when you're creating these um, uh, patient diaries or patient-reported outcomes that you use for there. And then uh, um, and then we 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 um, you know and for my group specifically, uh, we rely heavily on the literature. You know, where we are able to get a better understanding of what the disease burden is, the clinical characteristics, the prevalence, the incidence rates. Um, you know, kind of the Standard of care for many of these uh, clinical disease areas that we're focused on. So you can see um, there is a is a wide array of uh, of data types and data sources that we use. I think that those are, will only expand as the world gets smarter with how you can effectively analyze those data types. Um, but you know, I, I don't I don't know if we're quite there yet.
0: So you know, you're talking about a lot of different sources, types of data where it's coming from, some is streaming, some, in, some is episodic. You know, what are some of the roadblocks um, or speed bumps that you've encountered along the way that you can, you know, share pearls of wisdom with, with people listening?
1: Oh, man, it's, um, that is, <laughs> there, you know, I, I like to describe it as there are, um, obviously, some regulatory issues. Um, there are some ethical barriers. Um, you know, there are some even financial barriers and ultimately cultural barriers to how we think about sharing data, linking data, and ultimately using data. Um, you know, what, what we're seeing right now, if you think about it, there's there's a lot of discussion around um, how data should be shared and whether, uh, you know, you even heard some people say that uh, patients' consumption should be, uh, should be um, you know, they should be rewarded or are, are, are essentially paid right for their for their data. Um, there's there's discussions around that. There's obviously tremendous costs with procuring data because you got to remember for us we don't own we don't have an EHR without a provider. So we have to uh, construct these um, very uh, contractual relationships to actually have access to the data to do the things that we need to do that are outside of an I C T. Um, and then I think there's there's like these. The, I don't think that there's uh, general consensus around the principles and practices you know concerning um, uh, data access or, or data ownership and, and even uh, the control of, of individual patient data. but a lot of that at the at the root of it is still very much centered on this this notion that there isn't uh, trust across the various sectors from whether it be from providers to pharma, you know, farmers to payers or payers to pharma, payers to black, whomever, right? I mean, so we need to see um, the level of trust, which I think is probably the single greatest barrier to progress in this space um, across the entire industry. So,
0: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's always interesting, right, because there's a profit motive versus uh, what what providers may consider, you know, managing the patient. it It is a very scary landscape, especially when you see what's happening with Facebook and those, they, they don't necessarily help <laughs> the conversation when you're talking about data sharing and different um, dynamics. But so how do you think about utilizing technology and data to sort of improve things like clinical trial? I mean, We've, we've he- heard a lot about things like virtual trials or remote trials and then hybrid trials. And it sounds like you're getting real-world data from different technologies or different data streams. You know, how are you thinking about incorporating that into how it would speed up or streamline your process?
1: Well, I think that if you start even earlier than that, let's just say before you even get to the point of a clinical trial, because I think the default uh, response is that Okay, we have this new medicine, this new molecule. Let's do a clinical trial and what I, what I would like to see is the the kind of hierarchy of evidence, if you will um, Incorporate or, or, or really truly embrace the the other means at which you can generate evidence that's acceptable to a regulator. And so what I mean by that is that when you think about early clinical discovery, which is we play a, my group plays a critical role in there, where we're trying to understand like the disease epidemiology, right? Which includes like what's the current standard of care around this disease, um, what's the disease burden, what's the unmet need. Those are some fundamental questions that we like to answer very early on in the discovery phase. And then when you get to the clinical trial stage, you want to ask yourself, okay, does it make most sense to do a randomized clinical trial, or does it make more sense to do what I would deem as a big data or real world evidence trial, right? And in a real world evidence trial, that's where you start to get into all the different models and types that you just mentioned. I think the only one that I didn't hear you say was like pragmatic clinical trial, uh, which incorporates all those things, right? It's a different manifestation of it. Um, but I do think what where so where you see me thinking about things is that okay if we do do a randomized clinical trial. Then these are different. This is how we can use real world evidence to optimize that clinical trial by identifying um, where these patients actually are. Right? Um, you know, where is a where is a clinical trial of an RCT most likely to be successful with the recruitment and retention of patients just based on where they reside? It also would help with understanding what the feasibility of doing that clinical trial is like because you know obviously there are A significant number of clinical trials that are delayed um, just because of you know whether it be patient recruitment issues or site selection challenges you know you name it um but then if you go this other route that's kind of the adaptive trials or real world trials angle that you were alluding to then what exactly does that look like and i think that um that's the area that's like uh that we're we're in the nascent stages of exploring i mean we've been doing randomized clinical trials for what five decades or so (laughs) So um, so that's been around around for a while, but this whole area of real world trials and big data trials presents immense opportunities, but we're going to have to put forth the investment a bit bit more exploratory uh, to see how it works. And I ultimately feel like that's what uh, the FDA and even the EMA, they're encouraging us to do. Now, the scary part about this is that there isn't a lot of prescriptive guidance uh, around how and what you should do. Um, and of course, no one wants to, uh, uh, you know, take that risk and have, you know, it be a, a dismal failure and without any complete, uh, without any guidance at all, right? So uh, I think that what the regulators are saying is they're learning too, and they want us to try it, submit it, and see how they feel about it. And then they, as they learn, they'll give um, more um, specific or prescriptive guidance around how we should how and how we should think about these things in the future. But um, it's a you know there's a lot of gray area in there right now, um, and it does require a, a level of um, exploration um, to really figure it out, and that's that's where we are right now.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it's funny because I you know I feel for the regulators. I mean with the with the rate of change on the technology side, it's
1: yeah and, you know it's like they can't keep up. You know that's the thing. It makes it it makes it impossible because the regulators can't keep up with the pace of. Of scientific and technology innovation, I mean, it's just impossible, right? And so, yeah. you know, well, so for them, I don't fault them for where they are right now. I really don't. I mean, it's just a tough situation for us to be in because it's such a regulated industry, right? And so, uh, so you're relying on them, but they can't. You know, um, they're in a tough situation as well. So
0: yeah, no, I mean, it's funny because I used to think about it. You know, a lot of it was driven by scientific change, and and now it's not just scientific, but technological and data science and it's hard enough for us to hire the people we need to hire, let alone <laughs> somebody at a regulatory agency hiring them, which, which sort of brings me to the next question. So it sounds like, and and, and not knowing the structure of your group, you, you have to have unique talent sets to pull off what you're trying to pull off. And these people aren't falling off trees. So how do you how do you find them or how do you entice them to you know not go to facebook but to come to pfizer
1: you know it's interesting because that's (laughs) again that's a great question and it's been one of the more sobering realities of um of where we are when it talks about the um uh, the availability of the abundance or lack thereof when it comes to data science you know and what i've come to find out this is this is my you know, this is my personal perspective, people can take fun of what they want. But, you know, I think at one point several years ago, everyone was vying to have to be more like Facebook or these other companies in the Silicon Valley and hire all the data scientists that they could. What I quickly come to realize is that you can hire data, data scientists, anyone, but they can have very lim- limited to no value, right? Because the reality is the key is to find those data scientists who have domain expertise where well, they can really interpret their own analysis to help inform decision-making. That's ultimately what we want to get to, right? And so, um, and so really the key is to, uh, I find, is to really develop a hybrid approach where you're using, you know, these very classical data scientists who are just expert modelers or they're machine learning scientists or whatever their background is, right? And you partner them with folks who really understand the pharma business. Right. And what you're hoping is that you start to get some level of uh, organic growth um, and there's a bit of cross training where you're the science the data scientist is learning the business and the business supposed to learning more about data science and um, and you can really um, Start to move the needle that way. I think what I quickly realized is that you can't find there are no true unicorns in this situation. Every team that you have should be built with the notion that it's going to be an interdisciplinary team where you're going to have experts in it. I think people have this this kind of uh, uh, Misguided point of view that they think that you're going to find this single individual who's an expert in, the, in a domain expert with this very robust kind of uh, data science capability. And I'm not quite sure if there's some cases. That, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're out there in some in rare cases, but they're not as in abundance as we all think and I don't know how easy it is to find those folks, those data scientists off the street who can just come in and add instant value. Sure. They may be able to build the best model, but if no one can interpret it, then it doesn't mean anything. Right.
0: Right. Right. So,
1: you know, I've kind of, I've, I've evolved from that notion that you need all data scientists and think, and I really believe that, um, you should take more of a hybrid approach of kind of growing many of these guys organically and, um, and also, you know, obviously bringing some of that expertise in because you do need that deep expertise. But I don't, I don't think I need to compete with Amazon or Facebook for data scientists. And another talent that you find too is that, um, quite frankly, the data scientists want work that they feel like is very challenging and rewarding to them. And um, and you know, and this is this work is not for everybody, right? And uh, and so you have to find folks that really have a passion and give them, uh, give them the narrative, the story of how the work really matters. Um, because I, what I find is that, believe it or not, many of these guys, they want to do rewarding work, and whatever reward, however they define that for themselves is uh, an individual uh, uh, perspective. But, you know, they really want to do rewarding work, and so you got to find folks that are really passionate about what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of, like, when we were doing the genome at Applied Biosystems, we are like, okay, We need bioinformatics. What the hell is that? Well, get the biology guy and get the informatics guy and put him in a room and have him, you know, duke it out. And, you know, it's only recently where we actually have, you know, you can actually get a degree in bioinformatics. Um, You know, the rest was on-the-job training. And, God, I feel like with what we're doing now, it's it's almost a stepwise challenge, especially with the way that technology is, Jumping forward from the tools that it's providing our industry, you know, which one do you apply? Which analytic technique? Which, which training method? What chipset? What you know? There's just so much that comes into it that teams keeping up with it is 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 non-trivial. You know,
1: that is um, that's such a, a great, 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 great point. You know, I um, so yeah, to your point, I actually teach, and um, I actually have a son that's in college. And you know, and I and I feel like I'm sharing the same advice with the students as well as with son. Um, you know, this whole idea and, and my son in college actually right now he's learning Python you know, as part of his programming. Yep. Um, yep. He was oh, that's going to be great, it's going to be great. And I'm thinking like, okay, yeah, it's very current. Um, but you know, at the same time, I'm thinking about what I actually tell my students, which is I emphasize to them the need to be more focused on the soft skills. Sure, I would like them to understand like the technical concepts, but man, to your point it's like the moment they master this technology or this approach and it becomes obsolete, then what are you, what's your alternative, yeah, you know? Exactly. And so I'm like, uh, I just, I just think that, and then as we continuously talk about automation and what that means, especially when it comes to advanced analytics, I don't know how, I mean, I just, you, we, we don't know what the jobs will look like 10 years from now. Right. And, um, and so it's a tough situation, but I think that if, you know, I, one thing I know, is that the soft skills and the need for that will never go away right and um and so I, I I just need i just i wish we can we put so much emphasis on these uh you know programming languages or these technical specific technical skill sets and not enough on what it takes to work in a team and work uh, in leadership and other things that I think are important
0: so do you see the technological implementations that you're working as as um incremental uh you know are they stepwise are they exponential or is it you know in that still ramping phase where you're still trying to figure out how to put all the pieces together
1: i think you know can i say all of the above i mean i think uh, <laughs> i mean you know so pfizer itself has been you know you know several years ago they announced we, we announced it was before my time so i'll say today, but, um, but, Pfizer announced a partnership with IBM and to do, you know, it was IBM Watson Health to do the uh, uh, the IO or immuno-oncology uh, project. And was gonna be a way to accelerate the discovery phase of the, uh, you know, of the life cycle, right, and uh, so that that was, a, I mean, that was a full plunge, right, into um, what that really meant. I think that everyone, all parties involved, as well as the industry, um, were very excited around what the possibilities could be with AI, and, um, I don't know if we, I don't know if people, I don't know if we were able to really articulate use cases specifically because the technologies just felt so new, right, to this whole uh, clinical research, clinical development space. Now you fast forward to where we are now and the whole industry has had some lessons learned from others and from maybe their own experiences and, and now they're approaching things a little differently. So I think um, when you say stepwise, I, so, on one hand, sure, that was an all-in plunge, right? You know, I, I don't know if it's just all part of the hype cycle or what, right? And, and, and then there's a point when you get to where you're like, okay, um, I've tried that. Um, I may or may not have seen all that I wanted to see. Um, so, let me be a bit more stepwise, I would say strategic uh, and opportunistic about the use cases and, uh, and a little more deliberate in how we're going to execute on those. So, we, we're not going to boil the ocean, so to speak. Uh, we're going to identify specific use cases that we know we can really move the needle with this technology. And so, I think uh, uh, where we are now is in um, that phase of exploration where we're saying, where can we invest that we know will have a, a, a significant impact and have value? And, um, and, and that's where we want to focus, right? Um, it doesn't have to be the entire pipeline or the entire life cycle it can be specific stages where we think we'll have the, the, the maximum benefit. And so so I think that's where it is. So it's like, you know, that's why I said all of the above, because on one hand it was all in, and then the other hand, you're kind of thinking, okay, let's be a bit more strategic and opportunistic. And then you also got this uh, level in some areas where there's still some level of skepticism around what can this technology really do. And so it's like the, proof-of-concept phase, you know, and so it just depends on where you are in the organization.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, without divulging confidential information, um, you know, do you have areas that you see these capabilities sort of moving the needle?
1: I think one of the more obvious things, um, you know, when you think about my world specifically, which is kind of the real world data, real world evidence world, um, you know, there's been extensive uh, conversations and dialogues around using NLP for structured, or more of the we'll say provider notes, so to speak. Especially when you start to get into these areas of like different types of rare disease and 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 cancer tumor types, right? Um, and so uh, so using NLP, for example, to really understand and examine, um, you know, voluminous amounts of um, um, uh, provider notes or data um, would be a huge huge win right whereas I think you know maybe the case five years ago would have been well I want to use all of the different AI techniques to understand all data elements within <laughs> the HR um, now it's, it's probably a bit more focused and the question is a bit uh, is better formulated and so thus you get a better use of the technology so I think that's like one use case I think there's uh, other opportunities to do know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the data sources we use is around um, the vast amounts of literature. Um, I think that's where uh, the IBM Watson health uh, technology really came into play. It was very, it was able to ingest, um, you know, um, uh, know, massive amounts of of literature and data and analyze it in a, you know, much faster than a human could actually do it and and produce uh, some direction and, and things like that. So I think There are opportunities to to get, even when it comes down to literature search, which there's so much literature out there that in and of itself could be a huge use case, especially from a group that's focused on the understanding of disease, right? Which is what we do. And so, uh, so I think those are kind of like two uh, very um, targeted use cases when I think of it and how they could be used.
0: Well, I, you know, I look forward to uh, sitting down with you in person or meeting you, and you know, at the conference coming up in, in uh, a short while here. Hopefully we'll get a chance to hear more about what, what you're doing at Pfizer and, you know, interact more. A, this is a small world, and, and it's always good to be in touch with people who are at the forefront of, of what's happening in the field.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And that's it for this special series of AI machine learning and analytics. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.